morning. Ooh, we are awake. I like it. So I'm guessing most of us have had this experience where you know a song, you might even really like this song, and you've sang it many times, and then five or ten years later, you realize you've had the lyrics wrong this entire time. Yes, and maybe the lyrics don't even make sense. A friend of mine recently said, I thought the song Free Fallen by Tom Petty was free for it, which doesn't make sense. (laughs) The same thing happens with movies and television. You see something for the sixth time and you catch this detail, this joke you didn't notice, or it takes on new meaning because you're in a different season of life. Like how did all the characters on Friends afford those apartments in New York? (laughs) A similar thing can happen with the Bible. It's long, there are a lot of stories, some that are confusing, and you could read it over and over again and miss it, miss something, some detail, some story. This summer, the series that we're doing is called Deep Dive. We're diving into some remarkable stories in the Old Testament, the first half of your Bible, and we're paying special attention to stories that might be less familiar. And I think the story that we're looking at today might leave some of you thinking, has this really been here the whole time? How did I not know about this story? Let me pray for us before we dive into God's word. God, we come before you this morning with hope and expectation, desire to hear from you to have you move in our hearts, to speak to us. So we pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what you might be saying. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So the passage that we're looking at this morning is in the book of Numbers. And if you were here last week, Brad gave a kind of overview context of this book in the Bible. But to give you a little refresher... In this book, basically what's happened is God has delivered this group of people from slavery in Egypt, and he's leading them into this land that he has promised them, the promised land. And I have the map that Brad used last week that shows basically the whole journey is a mess, and it takes much longer than it could have. And part of the reason it it takes so long is the people over and over again are so rebellious. They doubt God's goodness, doubt that God is really going to lead them into this land. At one point, they even say, we should just go back to Egypt. Why did Moses ever lead us out? Let's find a new leader who will take us back to Egypt. And the story that we read today references one of these rebellions led by someone named Korah, who earlier leads a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. So it's helpful to know that this book is a bit of a mess. We're diving into chapter 27, where it says, One day, a petition was presented by the daughters of Zelophehad, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. Their father, Zelophehad, was a descendant of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, son of Joseph. These women stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the tribal leaders, and the entire community at the entrance of the tabernacle. 
our father died in the wilderness, they said. He was not among Korah's followers who rebelled against the Lord. He died because of his own sin, but he had no sons. Why should the name of our father disappear from his clan just because he had no sons? Give us property along with the rest of our relatives. So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord replied to Moses, The claim of the daughters of Zelophehad is legitimate. You must give them a grant of land along with their father's relatives. Assign them the property that would have been given to their father. And give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If a man dies and has no son, then give his inheritance to his daughters. And if he has no daughter either, transfer his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. But if his father has no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan. This is a legal requirement for the people of Israel, just as the Lord commanded Moses. How cool! I didn't add this in here. It's really always been here, if you've never seen it before. This story really does describe something remarkable. It's helpful to know that in this context, according to existing customs and beliefs, women were not allowed to inherit land from their fathers in this way. These women were in an extremely vulnerable situation. There's a good chance that they were quite young, younger than the art I have displayed on the slides would lead you to believe. They were probably teenagers, Shout out to the teenagers in the room. Without a father, a brother, probably without a mother and land, who was there to take care of them and who would preserve their father's name? This was of vital importance. There's really a lot to unpack here, a lot that makes the story so remarkable. So let's start with the women. What's so remarkable about them? I think they are wise and strategic and intentional about how they present their case. They're presenting their case to a group of men and notice that they don't go before and say, we, don't, we can't inherit this land of our father. We're in a really vulnerable situation. Could you help us out here? Maybe we could have some of this. No, they say, why should our father's name not be preserved? It's like they're appealing to a man's experience. Who would want his own name to be preserved? And they're coming before not one person. This isn't a one-on-one -on -one conversation. They're coming before men in power and the whole assembly advocating for themselves, which is always vulnerable. Think about a time that you advocated for something that you needed, whether it be in a relationship or the workplace. Maybe you were asking for a raise. You were really putting yourself out on the line, maybe asking for a date. And you do this, not one-on-one, -on -one, but in front of all your friends, your neighbors, the church community. Very risky, isn't it? Because imagine if they had asked and they received a no. Weeks later, they're walking around and people in the community are whispering, oh, there they are. Those women who thought they could inherit land on their own. They're risking shame. The last thing I want to mention that's so remarkable about these women is that their request demonstrates their faith in God's promises. What land are they talking about here? Land that 
they're not even living in yet. Remember in the book of Numbers, people doubted God's faithfulness. Would we ever really get there? And these women aren't saying, let's go back to Egypt. They're saying, hey, when we get there, can we have the land that was supposed to be our father's? They believe that God is going to take them there. These women are awesome. I also want to give some kudos to Moses. It's really hard, I think, as a leader to often acknowledge, I don't really know the answer to that. <laughs> Let me go check on it, especially in front of a whole group of people. He doesn't say, no, we don't really do that. He goes and he asks God. Now, what about God? What is remarkable about God in this story? Because even though the women asked Moses, it's really up to God. The people just steward the land, but everything belongs to God. Well, I think it's really cool that God says yes. <laughs> I mean, and kind of immediately, not, oh, I'll think about it and get back to you, but he says yes, and if you've ever worked towards any kind of change, whether it be within a family system, policy, organization, business, justice, whatever it is, it never works this way. It's never a matter of, we'll just, just go ask them to change their mind. Just go ask them to change the rules. Just go ask them to do the right thing, and then they do it. The U.S. women's national soccer team has been working for equal pay for six years. These women ask, and God says, yeah. On the one hand, I think that's really cool of God. On the other hand, you might be wondering, why do these women even have to ask? If God is a God of justice and equity, always working to bring about restoration, why didn't God just do this on his own? Why wasn't it ever like this? I think it's an important question to consider because it relates to our own understanding and relationship to prayer and how we come to God. So let's tease that out a little bit. Why did they even have to ask? Well, first... I want to acknowledge that there are many cases in the Bible where God does respond to deliver, to restore, to rescue his people without ever having to be asked. So just because God doesn't do it here doesn't mean God never does it. And again, God, it would have kind of been out of God's character, but he could have said, no, this is a consequence of your father's sin, or no, I, I agree with you, but the people really aren't ready for this, so check back in with me in like a decade. He says, yes. And who's to say that God wasn't working in them, empowering them, giving them vision to bring about this change? Who's to say that God wasn't working in Moses' heart to be open to receive this? Later in the Bible, in the book of Philippians, it says God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. God is always partnering with his people to bring about justice, restoration, his good purposes. I've mentioned here before that the first church that I worked at existed within and for a specific neighborhood, and I worked with teenagers. And I felt really convicted at the time that we needed to create a sort of culture of restorative discipline. And by that, I mean 
not punishment-based or punitive. And the simplest expression of this is that we would let kids and teenagers, if they did something wrong, if they made a mistake, make it right. Just make it right. And it was kind of cute because they really like took to this and they would call each other out and say, ooh, gonna go have to make that right. So one Sunday, I was walking some teenagers home from church. We met in the school cafeteria, and I see their younger brother, he's in about fourth grade, who's notorious for getting in trouble, being really disrespectful, run inside the house with three backpacks that I knew belonged to the school. And I said, hey, where'd you get those backpacks? And he ran inside so fast and said, an old lady gave them to me. What a nice old lady. This may not seem like that big of a deal, but it felt really pivotal to me because I was worried he would do this again, someone else would catch him, and it could have significant consequences for his life trajectory. So I talked to my housemates, and we decided that that week we would invite students to come over and work on their homework, and maybe he would come and we could talk to him about the backpacks. Well, surprisingly, he was the only one who came. So it was just him, me and my housemates, we had a conversation, we ended up talking about the backpacks. And he said he stole the backpacks because his cousins didn't have new backpacks for school. So we talked about that, and then he decided he wanted to make it right. He knew he needed to make it right, but he was really scared, did not want to go to the school, did not want to take these backpacks back. And then finally he said, well, Grace, what if we fill up the backpacks with school supplies, and then we take the backpacks back, and I'll volunteer setting up and tearing down at church to pay you back for the school supplies. So we're on our way to the school with these backpacks, now with school supplies, and the whole time he's dragging his feet. I don't want to do this. I'm not going to do this. I can't do this. I'm going to be in so much trouble. They're going to suspend me. I'm not going to be able to play sports. Mind you, I am not making him go. He's just walking towards the school. And I really did not know how this was going to go. I was a little bit hopeful because I knew the principal and I knew she wanted him to thrive, but we got to the school, the principal wasn't there, we were meeting with the vice principal. And we sit down and this fourth grader, known for being disrespectful and getting into trouble, opens up his heart and says, this is what I did and I'm so sorry, and I'm here to make this right, and we have the backpacks. I'm totally speechless. And then the vice principal says, well, we suspend students for stealing, and we take away their extracurricular activities, and I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh, no, this can't happen, praying in my head. And eventually, the vice principal decides he's not going to do anything And we walk out, and the student goes around the neighborhood finding parents and families that he knows. And he says, guys, guess what I did? So proud of himself. This story is different than the passage that we read today, but the reason I shared it is because afterwards, I remember thinking, I cannot believe that this just happened. I could not have made this happen. God was working in us and through us to bring about restoration in this relationship, and for this kid. And when you hear stories like this, the story of the daughters of Zelophehad, it almost makes you wonder, is God working around you? Could God partner with you to bring about his good purpose? Maybe God would say yes 
to a bold request that I have. Now, a quick caveat here, because we're getting into some muddied waters. I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting that you ask God for anything you want, and God will give it to you. God, Taylor Swift tickets, please. It doesn't work like that. And I also want to acknowledge that even when you are coming to God with this deep request for something that aligns with God's purpose and character, it can be difficult. It's vulnerable. Just like it's vulnerable to ask someone else for what you need, it's vulnerable to ask God because sometimes we ask for something that we desperately need, we really want to see happen, and it doesn't happen. And that's devastating. It's hard to come to God with requests because the response is not always immediate. It doesn't always work like this. It takes perseverance. Jesus said, knock and the door will be open to you. Seek and you will find. Keep on asking and you'll find it. And a better translation of that would be keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. It takes perseverance. And on top of that, the impact of prayer isn't measurable. We like to know, like, how much time do I need to put into this before there's a result? Like, do I pray for three days or seven years? And, and will anything even come to it? It almost feels like a waste of time. Sometimes we pray and it seems like there's nothing. Sometimes we pray and God says, yes, so mysterious. And sometimes we pray and ask God, and God does immeasurably more. Who is it in this passage that brings about lasting historical change? The women come forward with a request about their circumstance. God, Moses, would you consider allowing us to receive this land? But they're not thinking about the women later in history. God is the one who enacts this systematic change and says, actually, any other woman who find themselves in this situation should be able to inherit their father's land too. It's not even just a matter of would God respond to this? Would God do something? But would God do immeasurably more than I'm even asking or imagining? In your prayer, in your partnership with God, in your advocacy, it could have implications that you're not expecting. Miraculous implications. I talked to someone recently who made a decision in their life a long time ago that they deeply regretted, felt so much shame about it, because it had really significant consequences for their relationships and their life, and they said it took nine years for them to fully receive God's forgiveness. And they said, after that, I was a totally different person. My relationships were different. The reason I tell this story is even a request that might seem individually focused, like, God, could you please help me forgive myself for this? It could change your sense of self-worth and confidence and how you are at work, your relationship with your friends, your relationship with your kids. It might change your relationship to your kids so much that it changes your kids' relationship to their kids. That's what we see that is happening in this story. I don't know about you, but I kind of want to be the daughters of Zalafa had when I grow up. They're so awesome. Living into this faith and boldness, vulnerability. 
So how do we do that? Two things came to mind. The first is I think it's significant that there were five of them. It's very different stepping into that space of vulnerability with five people rather than one. And I think there's something that happens when we have this small amount of faith that God could do something. It feels almost foolish or naive to say out loud, but then we do. We tell someone and they say, yeah, I want to I pray into that with you. They don't shut it down and say, oh, that's not, that's not going to happen. But they hold out faith with you. Solidarity in community sustains and strengthens our faith. And I think it's incredibly important in those moments in the seasons where there is the devastation of the prayer isn't answered and there are people there to hold you, people there to carry faith when it's too vulnerable for you to carry yourself. So number one, solidarity sustains and strengthens faith. And the second thing is I think the women knew who they were asking. I think they knew who they were asking. I just imagine conversations before this or talking about what they're going to do and maybe one of them said, what's the no, this is like too risky. What's the point? No, no way this is going to happen. And, uh, and one of the other sisters says, wait a second, who are we asking? We're asking God who delivered our people from slavery. We're asking God who is slow to anger, filled with unfailing love, always forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. This is God who provided for us over and over in the wilderness. We can ask God. So when you come to God with your request, with your desire that feels vulnerable, foolish, or naive, who do you think you're asking? Do you think you're coming to the vice principal or a judge who might say, oh, no, the punishment for that is, um, do you think you're coming to a God who created everything, set it into motion, took a step back, and said, I'll be back later to fix it, uh, good luck, not very involved in our lives? Are you coming to a God who resurrected Jesus from the dead? Are you coming to a God who is always at work to bring about restoration and justice and wholeness for people? A God who weeps with us in our suffering. A God who is ready to comfort us if our circumstances don't change. See, it's not the confidence in a desired outcome that allows us to come to God in faith with our request and believe that it could happen. It's our confidence in God's character. So who are you asking? Who do you think you're asking? So I want to invite us this morning into an exercise of faith. I'm going to give you about five minutes to reflect and think about what prayer request or deep desire that aligns with God's desire for wholeness, justice, and restoration feels unimaginable to you. That is to say, you lack faith or have very little faith that God would respond or do something about this. Maybe it's a relationship in your family. It's hard to believe that there could be restoration in this relationship. Maybe it's housing insecurity in the Bay Area. That's always been here. Like, what is God going to do about that? What feels almost unimaginable, almost naive or foolish to write down? So I'm going to invite you to think about that for about five minutes. 
write it down, and then we'll come back and pray together.